0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, April twenty first, twenty twenty one. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me once again, remotely, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And back from our technical disaster that uh, that that made it impossible for us to have her on the podcast yesterday. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Um. So the Derek Chauvin verdict came back, three uh, guilty verdicts, um, and uh, I am. I was ranting yesterday about how the behavior of Maxine Waters and Joe Biden and others, you know, was a was a in effect was a violation of the idea that of eight centuries of common law that had people being judged by a jury of their peers who heard the evidence under certain circumstances and made it and made a ruling that, you know, if you assume you want the verdict that you want and you don't get it, that the, the the jury is somehow, you know, that it delegitimizes the system and that this was a terrible thing. And I think it's very important in the wake of the verdict and frankly, some really kind of appalling rhetoric by people that I'm, you know, much more ideologically in sympathy with them than Maxine Waters. Um, this jury sat there, they, they listened to the evidence, they, they went through it. Uh, it was their, they had a, a man's life and his future in their hands. And they went into a jury room and they came up with a unanimous verdict in three different cases and the idea that we should then presume that they were doing so because they were afraid, or because they were afraid of the mob, or because they, you know, were being social justice warriors—whatever it is that you want to say—I um, think that's really bad. I mean, you're you're basically defaming these twelve people. You have no idea who they are, what they, and 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 this is the process they they did their they did their civic obligation, and. Um, uh and uh, from what we can tell beyond a reasonable doubt the prosecution made its case and it was very clear if you followed look we talked about it the week before that the defense had had a bad couple of days and the media weren't telling you about it or the prosecution had a bad couple of days and the media weren't telling you about it but clearly things turned around last week during the defense's case they had a, their 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 central witness was bad um was not believable made a bunch of mistakes uh, and they, and in the end, the prosecutor said, you saw the video, believe your own eyes. And, you know, to believe that, uh, George Floyd wasn't killed by Derek Chauvin, you have to believe all sorts of things that are not in evidence and for which there is no forensic
1: proof. That well, he, hang on and, now. Yeah. It's not It's not impugning the motives of this jury uh, to take to heart the admonition of Judge Cahill, the presiding judge in this case, who said that specifically Maxine Waters' comments uh, could represent the basis upon which an appeals court could overturn this verdict. That's correct. Insofar as it finds that the partial sequestration to which this jury was was in, and it wasn't even in sequestration by the time Maxine Waters made her comments, but it was when Joe Biden made his comments. But we don't know whether or not that, that that sequestration was airtight enough for them not to have heard this admonition from the president of the United States to do what he wanted to do. And if a future court decides that they were influenced or prejudiced by these comments, then it could very well overturn this verdict. When I say impugning, I, I'm talking about the system, not the jury. And obviously
0: what Judge Cahill said is something that's very important. But I mean, there seems to be almost a presumption... On the part of commentators uh, on the right, uh, that that this case was decided in, in in error and unjustly, and maybe what we need to do is provide the benefit of the doubt to the jury that sat and listened to the case. That's what I would do. That's what you. That's what we would wish others to do. Had the verdict come out as a not guilty verdict.
2: Yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. Is that we would there would be plenty of room to criticize the behavior of what a lot of cities, including Minneapolis, were expect were preparing for had the verdict not come down that way. Um, and and look, we have an appeals process for a reason. If any of those concerns that you see some commentators making about the evidence in the case or about how the judge handled it, and I agree with Noah. I actually think this entire jury that they should have been sequestered throughout this process. There was just way too much the temperature of this case was so high from the very beginning that it would have been very difficult for them not to be following something or get something um, uh, that might have prejudiced their decision making but this is why we have an appeals process he is, in, he is uh, entitled to an appeal he should make one and then we'll see but I but I do I, I, I'm also disheartened by some of the the idea that you know because uh, George Floyd was a was a a drug user because he had a criminal history that doesn't matter the evidence in this case is the only thing this jury had in front of them and it was what they were asked to consider and they did and this this is where they got so you can disagree with some of the decisions about what was admitted into evidence by the judge but again we have an appeals process for which he can raise those later
0: that's that that's exactly right and i all all i mean to say is that there seems to be a dynamic now that uh, a, a, a group of people are going to and uh, by the way let me just put it this way i am generally a believer that the uh, the this um, hunger to prosecute uh, police officers for the confrontations that they that they get into with with criminals um is a is a a terrible terrible thing and that it's a it's a it's a it's an advancing and creeping hunger and that's going to have all kinds of it's unjust uh we 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 arm and empower these people to protect us and they put themselves in harm's way every day for that purpose and are therefore provided with the right to self-defense that is actually goes somewhat above and beyond the kind of same rights that we all have and that is a very important thing. And you start messing with that and you start messing with just fundamental public safety. I, I do think that there is a kind of weird dynamic that is now set in, which is that there's a crime. And so, you know, liberals and leftists and Black Lives Matter people want the verdict that they want. And then, and then suddenly, uh, because they want it, there are people on the other side who are going to want, you know, a not guilty verdict.
2: Well, let's and, but let's be clear. Black Lives Matter is deeply dishonest about how it handles any of this information. I mean, they Black Lives Matter DC still lists people who were pointing guns at cops when they were killed as you know innocent victims of police violence. They are thoroughly, thoroughly dishonest when it comes to actually talking about the people who might have been uh, treated with uh, use of force that was unjust versus those who were actively in the commission of a crime and threatening the lives of others, including police officers. And we we. I mean, we're going to talk about the story in Columbus, but this is this is where I think the movement itself, part of the reaction to it, becomes extreme. In part because the movement's been, we're constantly told that this is a movement for justice and we should embrace this. They lie all the time. They lie about the circumstances of these things. They do it to produce a narrative and to raise money. And it is not acceptable. We shouldn't accept that.
3: Hey, yeah, I just want to make, can I make a point yeah. before you ask question? Yeah. Um. So. You know, we've seen that there are uh, people um, like Maxine Waters, for example, who seem to almost um, want um, the, the verdict to have come down um, uh, in a way that they don't find just because they want the chaos in the streets. They want the fight, right? Um, I'm very sorry to say that I get the sense from certain elements on the right that um, they also wanted that um, because they wanted to be able to say um, nothing will satisfy the mob which I think is usually true um, or, or or they wanted to be able to say that they don't accept um, justice um, they are uh, the the they, they are tearing the city down here we go again look at the vial after they want to be oh. able to comparatively justify uh january the the siege of the capital in january by saying you know these are you they, they want to be able to point at newscasters who would who would call the riots that would have ensued mostly peaceful and all and, and they were deprived of that on the right
0: look this is this is a very important point I, I i have to confess i was kind of staggered yesterday after the verdict and when i'm reading stuff this morning uh that the uh, overwhelming uh, impulse of the of the people who uh, believe that this verdict was critically important in the history of world civilization have greeted it with the with a very grudging and niggling sense that it matters it's like well it's a start or it's only the beginning or don't let's justice you know you you want this wasn't justice being done Uh, because systemic racism is present. We have that, again, this incredible cognitive dissonance, right? It is uh, just five years after a black president served eight years in the Oval Office. We have a black vice president standing there at the podium in front of the American people talking about systemic racism as the vice president (laughs) of the United States. We have this idea somehow that there is this thing called systemic racism that is endangering black people's lives Uh, You know, from cradle to grave at the same time that we have the leaders of the country uh, increasingly (laughs) as as African, if systemic racism were the threat that people thought it was, we would not have a black president. That is is like rule number one. You know, in that sense, it doesn't matter what happens to anybody uh, on a street. You know, this is a society that's choosing who governs it. And, uh, and, and, and that guy won by the largest margin, you know, in, tw- in 20 years. Uh, this, is some, this is a thought that I'm already
1: actually teasing out for the blog this morning that you pulled directly out of my brain, um, is that after this, you know, event, you had people like the President of the United States saying, well, you know, systemic racism is a thing and it still exists. Systemic racism is an extremely frustrating concept and a problematic one, particularly in light of this verdict. It has the virtue for activists of being so unspecific and so vague as to be a blanket indictment of a society um, without indicting any individual or institution therefore having very little um, you know pushback from any individual institution that would defend its prerogatives um so it's it's a fun activist statement but then you had people like dan jones today early last night saying all we want is for police officers to follow the law well what is the law if it is not systemic what Are the remedies to this kind of abuses if they are not within the system if there are police officers who are not prosecuted sufficient to appease the activists it is as a result of the law and how do you change the law you do so within through acting within the system the the system is the remedy as much as it is the problem in their eyes but they only focus on the problems. They don't focus on the remedy. So to say that there's, you know, this systemic racism is vague and as as an organizing ethos, as a principle, it's valuable politically, but it makes very little sense once you actually begin to think about it. And this trial sort of very much undermines, I think, uh, one of the central premises of the idea of systemic racism. Well,
0: that's I think why there was there was a, there was some kind of weird disappointment. That the verdict didn't didn't confirm the prior that in a country like this there is no justice for African Americans, and that systemic racism will let you know uh, will let cops off uh, no matter what. So that's not what happened here, and uh, and and that did not stop uh, people last you know yesterday afternoon from saying I, I'm 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 angry I'm still angry this isn't justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if that's not justice. What is justice? What Van Jones said is 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 actually exactly right, which is everybody in this country should obey the law. Police officers also, and police officers are governed by the law. And what the jury found was that Derek Chauvin was guilty of second degree murder because in the he was already doing something illegal uh, in the way that he had. Uh, stopped and was uh, subduing George Floyd, that he was already using excessive force, and that then in the course of that use of excessive force, George Floyd died. So it wasn't murder in the sense that it was, you know, uh, premeditated, planned, or anything like that. that. It is that he was already doing something he shouldn't have been doing. George Floyd died in the midst of it. And so... That's where a jury could look at that and say, well, yeah, they proved that beyond a reasonable doubt. He was down on the ground for nine minutes. He said he couldn't breathe, and then he died. And you can say, if you can poke enough holes in the idea that that was done because of the knee uh, on, his, on, his, you know, on his back, the defense can say the knee wasn't on his back, it was on his shoulder. But then people look at the video and they looks looks like it's on his back. And they can say that it was because of an enlarged heart, because of fentanyl, or because of uh, exhaust fumes from the car. But there's no forensic evidence to support any and, of those allegations.
2: And even if there were, the, the duty of care that a police officer has with a suspect in custody, he does not have the right to, to to you know, he's not an executioner. He is there to arrest a suspect. And yes, suspects can sometimes become extremely unruly and violent, this The case here, though, was – and I think this is where the video both had an outsized influence, which can be pernicious, but in this case for the jury, it clearly wasn't. It was, you know, look at what – what did you see here? As a reasonable person on a jury, plus all of the evidence we've gathered, doesn't matter if he had an enlarged heart or he had, had scarred lungs or, you know, that is not the, the, the officer's duty. And I do think they weighed this not as, like, the average Joe on the street, but as a police officer who's given great power uh, to arrest and whatnot – he did not follow the duty of care that he should have. And that is enough to put him away. And I, I, I'm still very, I'm still astonished both about what you were talking about, some of the commentators saying this isn't enough, but also the weird sort of effort by political leaders like Nancy Pelosi to thank George Floyd for dying, like this weird sort of her her later uh, issued public statement, the written statement, took this out but when she gave her initial statement her comments to the press, she basically turned him into this martyr and was thanking him for pursuing racial justice. That's also the wrong approach for this country to take with regard to the use of force by Police officers, it's 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 baffling to me that they're, they're kind of searching for a new narrative now, and I'm not sure what they're going to land on. But I hope that's not it. I mean, that was that was a a chilling, it's bizarre, and bizarre yeah.
0: thing to say. And I have to say that you know, based on what I was seeing on Twitter, it was sort of the general opinion of people to go, "What? Whoa!" <laughs> no matter where you were on the political spectrum, like she said, "What?" <laughs> and you know, it sort of reminds you that I, there's now this Hey Geographic biography just out of Nancy Pelosi by by um, Susan Page of USA Today. And, you know, it, she's a power broker. She's this, blah, blah, blah. She is a very ham-handed, lame-fisted uh, leader. <laughs> no, but a leader, not, I mean, uh, she does not say the right things. She does not handle and comport herself well as a leader in the sense that You know, we are always talking about uh, Mitch McConnell is, you know, uh, so you know, Sphinx like, and he shows no emotion or whatever. Nancy Pelosi sticks her foot in her mouth all the time. She is really bad at public messaging, and this was among the worst public messages. Thanking George Floyd for his service in exposing race, you know, I, I mean, that is a really, really horrifying thing to do since what we are seeing here is an effort to get justice for George, for George Floyd's uh, unjust and illegitimate death right that's i mean if you if you believe in the guilty verdict that they George Floyd should be alive today not dead and he didn't do you know
2: and she should thank the jury for their service in right. pursuing justice in this case not him for dying i mean he's not Jesus Christ yeah. like literally the way and look there there is a, there's a, there's a a tendency um, post Black Lives Matter uh, era. Anytime someone is killed by police, they are instantly a saint who, you know, was peaceful and whatnot. And that's a lie in many, many cases. That's just an outright lie. Um, So the idea that left-leaning political leaders would buy into that and cater to that makes sense, you know, for their base, but it's, it is kind of appalling when you see it in the way she presented it yesterday.
0: Yeah. It's also important because the whole point about Pursuing a case like this, uh, you know, with a uh, with a, a person with you know no public profile or whatever who has this confrontation with police that is recorded on an iPhone, and therefore you know the the world can change as a result of it is precisely that he's not a person who matters. By which I mean, it shouldn't have happened to him. We should never have known that George Floyd existed. He should have led a life of complete anonymity. He's only known to us because something awful and horrible was done to him and to the least as well as the most of us just justice is deserved uh george floyd may have lived a troubled life he may have been taking a lot of fentanyl he may have been passing a counterfeit bill he should not be dead now and he is and 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 if it's necessary that the whole world stop for a minute to take account of that fact because of all sorts of other things that is perfectly fine. That's what an unjust killing means. You know, the the mind, the conscience, everything like that reels at the fact <laughs> that a life is stolen. And that's all you need to say or do. It's not that he then has to become a martyr.
1: but I, that's, uh, we precisely that's a really
0: don't important...
1: want people to be martyred. That's the whole point, but that's a really important point that Christine is raising that I hadn't really thought of until now is that the way in which, Black Lives Matter activists and now their Democratic advocates in Congress are treated treat people who are these are, are victims of, of police violence, um, regardless of the circumstances. as they they do treat them, they do become like a Bobby Sands figure, and and, and the the way they talk about them is very much in the yes. form of that kind of a martyred rebellious activist against system. They don't talk about the extenuating circumstances. They don't talk about the court procedures. They don't talk about the procedures that were implemented in the in the events that led to their death, the arrest-related procedures, what have you. This is the case with Breonna Taylor, for example, who is herself a sainted figure who is you know pictured with, with literal halos around her and on these murals, um, even though the, the circumstances that led to her death, tragic as they were, were explicable. Um, that's the sort of thing that a revolutionary movement engages in. And to see it That's from right. members of Congress um is particularly disheartening. Look, Bobby Sands was a
0: was an activist, some would say a terrorist, who was thrown in jail. He was already he was committed to a cause. This was his cause. You could say in you know in, in very much different circumstances and for different Alexei Navalny right now. Is dying of a hunger strike. He is a he is an activist trying to make himself a martyr for a cause. Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Eric Garner and other people, they didn't sign up for anything. They were under. They were living their lives under under different circumstances, and that does not make their lives any less valuable. That's the tricky part here. Is uh, you know, all of uh, all of uh, Western ideas would say that George Floyd's life is no less valuable than Derek Chauvin's, no matter that George Floyd was a drug addict and Derek Chauvin was a was a police officer. Uh, we we do not. That is not how we evaluate worth uh, in our society. By you know, based on material circumstances or how well you've done in life or you know what mistakes you may or may not have made ultimately god may make those determinations and it is beyond us to make those determinations but there is a, you know an implicit idea the whole point the reason that police are given latitude in these cases and have been for for so long is that they chose and we empower they've chosen to be people who put their lives on the line for everybody else as a kind of symbolic army and they are there to confront people who do wrong do who you know who do wrong and 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 deal with them for the rest of us and they are therefore at vastly greater risk than the rest of us are and are in circumstances where split second decisions have to be made and if you think that you can slow it down that's where juries are told put yourself in the cop shoes and in this case i think the defense made a valiant effort to try to get people to look at everything from the perspective of Derek Chauvin and say that, you know, create a narrative where Derek Chauvin behaved in a proper manner. And the, and the jury didn't in the end, the jury, the, the speed with, 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 with which the jury came back suggests that they did not come anywhere near to even raising the possibility in the minds of, you know, four or five of them, that there was reasonable doubt here.
2: There's there's, another, I think that's absolutely right. Like they didn't, they, they couldn't put themselves in his shoes after having seen the evidence that the prosecution presented. I will say the other part of the instant martyrdom narrative that concerns me, because I think it has future implications for interactions with law enforcement, particularly for people of color, is the idea that the cops are out hunting people of color. You see this in the activists say this all the time. It's like, oh, we can't even sleep in our in our beds, you know, innocently. We can't go for a walk on the street. The cops are hunting us because we are black. That is an extremely dangerous narrative to be promoting. First of all, it's untrue. Second of all, it does lead to situations where if you actually grow up believing that and a cop approaches you about something, Your your likelihood of running, resisting, doing all of the things that actually end up getting people killed is higher. And I, I really worry about that in terms of how we, both how we train officers and the message we're sending, uh, children in particular. If you're teaching children to be fearful and assume that the cop is a murderer, if you happen to have dark skin, you're teaching a message that's actually going to be more likely to harm people of color, not less. And it is, it is not getting, giving the benefit of the doubt to officers. And I see it all the time. I mean, I live in, I live in DC, a multiracial city. I see this message among parents. I see it in schools i it's extremely toxic, and it's a narrative that benefits the most radical extreme activists and harms the people it, it it who most need protection from law enforcement and I don't see that getting any better, but I do think our officers should be trained uh with that in mind when it comes to f- people fleeing and whatnot and i mean we a lot of the officer involved shootings over the past year or so have involved suspects fleeing or suspects resisting. Um,
0: And we should, we should talk about that because we have a case of that that's, you know, already creating controversy just, you know, 14 hours or six and after it happened. But before uh, you know, we were in the podcast studio yesterday and uh, uh, for the first time in 14 months, uh, Noah Abin and and I, and I was not in my ex chair because my ex chair is at home and I missed it. That ex chair with its patented dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable support to my lower back, and its new XHMT technology, which provides heat and massage therapy while I'm sitting at my desk, as I am right now. It, that, that heat and massage technology goes right to my core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy, and four different massage modes. So instead of my old uncomfortable office chair that I was in yesterday, I'm looking, I, I'm sitting right here, you know what? I'm going to spend hours in this Ultimate Therapeutic Massager today, and I'm I'm happy about it. So you won't believe the difference with the X-Chair until you feel the X-Chair difference for yourself, the luxury supercar of office chairs. It's on sale now for $100 off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. And use code Xwheels for free Xwheels blade casters. That's xchaircommentary. dot com. Um, so, uh, just as the verdict was being read, a terrible incident was unfolding in Columbus, Ohio. Um, uh, and uh, immediately, you know, in the world of social media, uh, the parallel of the fact that uh, that a teenager had been uh, fatally uh, had been fatally shot in uh in a confrontation with police um you know became the ah, you see it doesn't matter it doesn't matter you can you can you can do one thing with you know with the with Derek Chauvin and George Floyd but you know somewhere else just elsewhere in the midwest there'll be a terrible thing uh happening um uh so the police in uh in Columbus Ohio have released the um body cam footage of this uh, shooting, and um, you would really have to be a very determined person believing that no one should ever do anything to anyone else to think that this does not totally that this was not a totally justified though horrifyingly tragic event. Um, right? So the video shows uh, the teenage girl. Uh, has a knife. She's chasing another girl outside a house. On the, uh, and the the girl who is being chased falls down uh, in front of the cop. the The officer screams at the suspect to get down. And then the girl turns and targets another one who is on the hood of a car. You can then see the suspect take what seems very clearly a knife in her hand. Pull it back as if she is just about to strike, and then the police officer shoots. Uh, thus, the police officer saved the girl who was on the car from being stabbed by the girl with the knife,
2: which should have been the headline, <laughs> right? <laughs> Saves right. a life, he saved right. her life, yes. Um can I, I I have to do a small rant because these Go. people are already infesting social media with their ridiculous he should have used a taser he should have disarmed her without his gun. Okay, so I actually train in knife disarming techniques. I I, I trained in those. I know how they work. There is okay, no Okay,
0: we need to explain. <laughs> we need to explain this.
2: For fun. This is it's just true. a hobby. <laughs> it's a this hobby. This is true. Christine is a black belt. <laughs> But this, this Christine is weird. Is
0: a black belt, and one of her, one of and and your your field. The, the... it's
2: aikido, yes. But we do weapons work, yes. And yes, we train. We- and so she. So
0: so please enlighten <laughs> us with your extreme
2: expertise. <laughs> I don't even have extreme. I'd say I have moderate expertise. But the point is that people forget how quickly these things happen, and a knife in someone's hand directed at someone's body can inflict fatal damage in a split second and that is exactly what this video shows i might also say she's being called a child that she was a teenager she was legally a child she's pretty large like she looked, she's she's adult size so the idea that this was like a small child you know wielding a a a tiny switchblade or something she had a large knife she was obviously pretty powerful Another thing with context we're hearing instantly the Daily Beast which which should which should just be called propaganda at this point ran with a story that was completely unsourced talking to the aunt of this girl who had supposedly heard these details from some unnamed other source this was a child who was in child protective services custody she'd been removed from her home The idea that the Daily Beast reporter would go to a member of that family, from whose family this child had been removed for circumstances we don't know, and take their their word as gospel is ridiculous. This woman claimed, oh, she called 911, which we still don't know who did the 911 call. Oh, she dropped the knife, the cop shot her anyway. They ran with this story and this narrative. It was believed by a lot of people before the body cam footage came out. And they're not really correcting that narrative now that the body cam footage is out. That is, that is misinformation if I've ever heard it. And if Twitter and Facebook are so concerned about the spread of misinformation or disinformation... They ought to take that stuff down, or slap their warning labels on it, or whatever they do to a lot of uh, people who spread this kind of stuff. It's dangerous. That that kind of misinformation spreading is bad. So I would say this: you know, this cop did exactly what he he should have done to save that girl's life, regardless of who started the fight. If you come at someone with a knife, someone unarmed with a knife, with the intent to kill, you there is really no other option for law enforcement except the use of deadly force. I mean.
3: There's another way to look at all these videos that are emerging day after day um other than uh oh, look at these terrible cops and it is and it certainly occurs to me it's why are all these people menacing their neighborhoods um wh- wh- what is going on why why are people wielding knives why are why are kids running with guns um Resisting arrest, out on uh, uh, gun warrants. Um, isn't that for 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 uh, the the left likes to, to talk about um, sort of core issues? Um, why are we Why are we never now talking about the core That's issues? That's systemic.
2: Here? That's the family. Where right, are these oh, kids' parents?
1: Right, but <clears throat> we're just aware of all these incidences that are happening all over the country in a country of 300 million, 330 million people. Uh, is it? such a plague or are we just simply aware of what would otherwise have just made a police blotter a generation ago or, in a or local they, paper we'd never read yeah, yeah but there
0: it's often, it's there often but, wasn't but, even a police blotter yeah but go ahead right. Right. No, no,
3: no, but mathematically it's 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 as much as of a plague as the as the police response i mean because well, it's, it's precisely it's that is one.
1: precisely the argument against the kind of ubiquity of this kind of information that we should should probably yeah. not be able to access because the human brain simply can't process it. We have this perception yeah. that the town square is on fire, and we we need to do yeah. something about it. Well, we when think the that town right, square is eleven 1, hundred miles away and doesn't right. affect
0: us. Well, no, but that's what's important. That's right. That that Twitter makes the world the town square, and 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 these events appear to people as though they are happening in their backyard. And geography matters. Uh, you know, it, it does actually matter that you're nowhere near, Minneapolis. Uh, or this one thing happens in Ferguson, Missouri, and then you presume that, every, that if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere, which is a perfectly understandable misunderstanding. I want to talk about another perfectly understandable misunderstanding. I say this, I think this is probably the 10th or 15th time I'm going to give this little spiel. About officer involved shootings and the training uh, of police police officers in the in the you know in the use of of, of deadly force, there is an idea abroad, largely created by popular culture, that uh, you know people are vastly more marksman like with weaponry than they are in fact. That sharpshooters are a tiny percentage of the population of shooters. Uh, they are uh, heavily and very seriously trained as sharpshooters. Um, and the the world of Westerns and stuff like that, where James Coburn the Magnificent Seven can shoot a gun out of somebody's hand at 100 paces, that's fiction. That's not real. Nobody can do that. Almost, I mean, maybe some, you know, there are like trick, you know, Annie Oakley could do it in the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. But trick shooting is not what people learn or are capable of or can do. What they are trained to do is to minimize collateral damage minimizing collateral damage when you were talking about pulling a weapon and, and discharging a gun involves aiming the bullet or you know aiming the gun at the torso of the target because that is the largest part of the of the target that you were aiming at and because if you hit that, it is much less likely if you aim there that you will miss and the bullet will go awry and will hit somebody else, particularly in an urban setting um, where, you know, streets are full of people. And so, at least in New York, when they train them, they they are trained, as, by the way, are people in the military trained uh, to shoot at the torso.
1: Uh it's not just because it's so it minimizes collateral damage. It's yeah. because you're gonna miss if right. you're aiming for anything other well, than center mass.
0: Right. But if you miss, there is a vastly increased likelihood that that bullet could go hit somebody else. Can ricochet, can careen, can whatever. So my point is that this there is this idea that police have in their wheelbox or their toolbox, not their wheelbox, a technique by which they can disable people magically without causing further damage. Now, there are people who can do this, right? There is a conflict. There are people, officers people, who are geniuses at conflict de-escalation. Um, and there is some training in this fact. And for example, in New York, another story I've told over the last 50 years after the really bad police scandals in New York of the early 70s, the training of New York City police became a very key element of the of the city's uh, you know, uh, the way in which people become cops, which used to be just a sort of patronage system. and um, and even as crime is de- all this stuff has gone on, police are vastly more less likely to pull their weapons in in certain situations. They are vastly less likely to discharge their guns in the course of, and you're talking about the largest city in the country. Double the size with a very low crime rate, but just because the rate is low doesn't mean the number of crimes is any lower. You know, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of crimes; they're just not. You know, they're again, it's a percentage thing. But the cops are just really well trained, and they've now they've been well trained for two generations. And uh, again, I have no, I, I I would not question what happened in Columbus, Ohio, at all in any way, shape, or form. It looks to me like someone's life was saved, not that someone's life was taken. Well,
2: and the way to the way to test that among the kind of left-leaning activist media class is to ask them, if this had been a white girl attacking a black girl with a knife, would the headline have been different? If the white girl was shot by the cop while menacing the life of the black girl up against the car, would the headline have been different? And I think we all know the answer to that, and that's the problem here. Like, how we interpret this stuff through the lens of a kind of racial justice activist uh lens is is becoming dangerous for the ordinary people who want to just kind of understand a situation and the misinformation is spreading before the countervailing facts can be even revealed. And so now you have these police departments and cities rushing to release body cam footage. It's happened a couple times here in DC too. You know why? Because the minute there's an officer involved shooting, a mob forms and 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 stays until they hear what's going on, and it's that cannot be our new normal because that's that's not helpful to the people who are calling for justice, and it's certainly not good for law enforcement's relationship with those communities.
0: Look, um, let me ask you guys a question, okay? We're having we're discussing very stressful issues. Sometimes it like helps to chew gum, right? When you're when you're stressed, you like. It relieves it. It helps you. So make sure if you chew gum, maybe you, you don't eat as you, you won't like go to the fridge to look for something to pop in your mouth because you're you're stressed. Um, and it also uh, freshens your breath, right? When you're going to meet somebody or do something, once you can take your mask off, um, or you chew it in order to make sure that the mask doesn't smell bad. Um, so gum is something people chew, but you know what? It's also can be an integral part of a healthy oral care routine and you know who has made it so quip the the tooth the electric toothbrush people that we've been talking about for years on this podcast the great electric toothbrush now quip is selling gum a new gum actually good for your oral health comes with a dispenser that will remind you of that one click candy you loved as a kid it can help prevent cavities fresh in breath when chewed for 20 minutes after eating sugar free with tooth friendly xylitol with zero calories and to satisfy your taste buds, Quip added a long-lasting mint flavor, crunchy tri layer design, and stamped it all with the classic Quip tongue. A slim travel-ready dispenser available in five colors, metal or plastic, packs and protects up to 10 gum pieces at a time, and fits in just about any pocket or purse uh, for on-the-go. In a world where we all need to be extra safe and hygienic, the quick-release button means you can still share with friends, no wrappers, hands, hassles, and a gum refill plan for a gift that keeps on giving all year round. Quip's customizable subscription lets you chew and share at your own pace and not worry about running out. Plus, the more you buy, the more you save with bulk discounts on extra gum packs. Not a substitute for brushing and flossing, but this is a great support for your oral health. Pair it with a Quip electric toothbrush, refillable floss, and more great products. So go to getquip.com commentary right now, and you'll get a free plastic dispenser with any refill plan. That's a free dispenser at getquip.com slash commentary spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary. Quip, the Good Habits company. You can also find the toothbrush, refillable floss, and more in the oral care aisle at your local Walmart. Uh, okay. What uh, What else is there to talk about? Is there anything else to talk about? Vaccination numbers? Uh, sure. Why not? It's good. You know, we got, you know. It's not good, right? We're not sure why it's not good. I mean, we have two different things. We have these reports at various counties, Wake County and North Carolina, where uh, there's vaccine going, going begging. Uh, we have a drop in the numbers right from four and a half million last week to like three million or a little less than three million yesterday or the day before yesterday. Doses in arms. It's not clear where that might be, because of the of the continuing sort of rolling fallout from the cancellation of the Johnson and Johnson vaccines and the fact that people had to reschedule and all that might might have uh, played a role. But uh, so, anyone have anything cheerful to say about this?
1: No. <laughs> okay. I mean, well, no, 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 no. um. I mean, we've been observing this for a while. We've been taught. I think we've been on the bleeding edge of this issue for a long time because the polling, while it was getting better around vaccine hesitancy, the numbers, the number of people showing up at sites was getting worse, and people who substituted polling information for for a macro picture of the of the vaccination environment um, were deluding themselves. And now that they're beginning to face up to it. You know, you have stories and you have the story in The New York Times. Now it's popping. It's now a national story um, saying, that you know, this is now going to be a hand to hand street fight. Like we're going to have to like really framing it like a counterinsurgency operation where we're going building to building and clearing out rooms. That is the wrong way to think about this. These people are not insurgents. This, these are not an adversary to be subdued. I'm with the government, I'm here with a shot is even worse than <laughs> I'm with the government, I'm here to help. <laughs> I mean, literally even the framing of it makes them, creates the impression that they're the bad guy and that something needs to be done about these people. And all even saying forever is that you just need to make it attractive for them to do this. They're, they're utterly unable to create the impression in their mind that there's something noble about appealing to self-interest.
2: Well, and we know from other, you know, pre-COVID, we know from anti-vaxxers that there are actually techniques that are effective in persuading people. Usually it's with a doctor, a doctor sitting down and listening to the concerns of an anti-vaxxer and then talking them through it and showing them some of the evidence. And you can actually persuade people out of this anti-scientific view. But yes, I totally agree with Noah that the the messaging right now is basically either you're you're horrible or you're an insurgent and we're going to come to get you to make sure you do this. And on the other hand, they look at the their options and think, why would I even want to do this? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Right. When nothing's going to change for me if I get a vaccine, either because they live in an area that's already open and they figure they're at lower risk. I think that's a lot of it, to be honest. If you live in a state that's open and people aren't wearing masks as much and, you know, they kind of look around and go, well, why do I need it? Everything seems fine. My kids are back at school. Businesses are open. And then you have the people who are just never going to want to trust a vaccine. And those are the ones who can be persuaded. Although I don't know if this.
1: you heard this, Christine, but I submitted this on the website yesterday that there is no scientific rationale for maintaining a mask mandate on people who have the vaccine.
2: Exactly. There is yep.
1: nothing stopping private enterprise. I hope government doesn't do this, but there's nothing stopping private enterprise from asking you to produce the quote unquote vaccine passport you already have in your wallet, the CDC card that says you got it to say that you don't have to wear a mask where the other people do. That's literally all you would have to do. And every single person right now who is hesitant about this vaccine would rationalize their way around it until the point that we've achieved herd immunity and their, and their, their hesitancy no longer matters. Right.
0: Look, we are, we are very much now dependent on the numbers from Israel and the UK on how we are going to measure when we achieve herd immunity. Uh, the 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 big report out of Israel suggests that we're a little a little over sixty percent effectively has brought herd immunity. The best evidence we have is that it's around sixty percent, and that's not sixty percent fully vaccinated either. Israel's basically through COVID, uh, it has achieved herd immunity, and now the question is whether we are going to apply that same standard to the United States, because I I just don't know that we're ever going to get to a number much better than that. I mean, uh, you know, unless there is a, a change uh, in the mindset. And uh, this now doesn't even go to spin because I'm, I'm sounding like I'm saying maybe we can use the Israel numbers to help us so we can declare victory and move on. I think actually if the numbers suggest that 60% is herd immunity, that's what we should go with. Um, uh, England is also apparently or the UK has apparently broken the back of covid um and uh that's with the british variant and everything uh which is an important uh an important detail um so you know if if, if fauci at all continue to hover in the 70 to 80 category uh we are in for a very difficult time here and i just think people need to understand that that's going to be the
3: case um I mean if we can get to sixty percent um and and the evidence from israel and the u k is is accurate then the numbers will drop of themselves and it, it you know it in a sense it it won't matter where fauci's at with that
0: right well the numbers are what matter so uh, in other words we get to we're at we're at uh, we're at fifty one or fifty two percent now uh, of the adult population of of the united states so we're 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 you know, a ways away, particularly with the slowdown in the vaccination numbers, we're a ways away from getting to 60%. And that's the question. Like have we, you know, have we hit this moment where it's going to be three months to get another 10% of the population vaccinated?
2: Well, and, and and the numbers do matter in the sense that the CDC recommendations and guidance are being used by like local school districts, for example, to continue keeping things hybrid or locked down to keep kids out of school. These numbers actually matter depending on how local political leaders decide to use them um, and apply them to the, you know, social institutions that a lot of people want to see reopening, but won't. So I do think I think you're right that if we if we just look at death rates and hospitalization rates and case rates, and they're steadily declining, you can make that argument. But as long as that CDC guidance, look, it took them forever to go from six feet to three feet in schools. And some schools are still following the six foot rule. So I feel like there's a trickle down effect in terms of how people put these policies into place, and see them as more like rules that can't be broken versus guidance that can be, you know, kind of taken on board, but not uh, read as law. And and I know just from the school experience, and I won't bore our listeners with more of a rant on that, but from the school experience, it really does matter what the CDC says. And they are way behind the curve on some of the, the science and some of the examples from overseas in particular. Right.
0: Well, look, the CDC is a government agency. Government agencies have an outsized effect on politics, on policy, on on everything that is involved in in American life and in the American economy. And, of course, to understand all of that, you want to go to our friends at the Bonson Group, that bi-coastal financial management and services firm with uh, 28 people in California and New York in particular, led by David Bonson, $2.8 billion under management, and two fantastic internet publications, the DCToday.com daily uh, during the week and D- and dividendcafe.com uh, issued on Fridays for the weekend uh, David analyzes uh, in the DC today.com the the way the markets have gone that that day and w- what sort of issues are are, are dominating the discussion uh, and how fed's actions the federal government's actions Corona all of that uh, are, are affecting the uh, investment atmosphere and then in DividendCafe.com, he gets uh, deeper into policy and and the interplay of uh, government uh, interference with the economy and the economy's good working order. So that's the DCToday.com, DividendCafe.com. From the Bonson Group, your antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Um, so uh, I am... I, I'm just feeling this very weird, uh, sense that, uh, that, that, that thing that Adam Grant talked about in the New York times on Monday, this languishing that, um, that at a time when we should be feeling as though we're coming out of this, we are sort of dipping into some weird languish and that, and that, um, uh I, I, I veer like Noah, actually, Noah's today is like, you know, they have to they have to sweeten the pot and they have to punish, <laughs> you know, it's like you have to sweeten the pot to get people to say it's going to be great to be vaccinated. On the other hand, you got to make it better for people who are vaccinated so that the unvaccinated understand that they are, you know, they are su- they're they're they are, uh, they're losing out on on a return to to ordinary life or, you know, uh, whatever it is that they, they might want to do. Are those contradictory, or do they... I don't
1: think so at all, no. And I wouldn't describe it as a punishment. This is entirely, purely voluntary on everybody's part. Purely voluntary if you, as a private institution, decide to implement such mandates, as I suggest. Purely voluntary on your part to participate, to patronize those institutions, to get vaccinated if you do. Purely voluntary on your part to not participate in those institutions. What I oppose are government mandates on any of this public sector mandates, all that would constitute something punitive. None of this is punitive.
3: I think it's pretty. Yeah, go uh, ahead. uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I think, you know, given where we're at culturally with, with the polarization and the paranoia on every single issue were private businesses to start implementing that kind of policy. We would now see a whole new breed of videos of confrontations and fights um, and uh, activism all, all around uh, people being prohibited services and resisting. And I think you
1: absolutely would. And it would be just as representative as episodes of violence in the streets and police confrontations. Uh, it would be presented as a pandemic on cable news, but these would be isolated incidents. Yeah. Uh, it would be, you know, the, the institutions in our country that thrive on this kind of projecting this kind of paranoia would stick a claim to it and make it seem as though it was endemic when it probably isn't. And there's one thing that we all have to wrap our minds around is there's going to be a segment of the population, a pretty significant segment that will never get vaccinated ever, no matter what you do. They will never, ever, ever, ever get vaccinated. And if your threshold is the 100% of the adult population in this country, and it probably pretty soon is going to be kids too, then you're going to fail. You're going to establish a threshold that you cannot meet. So what we need to do is create some sort of a paradigmatic approach to getting a significant amount of the population vaccinated that allows for dissenters because they're going to exist.
0: Well, it can allow for it. That's where the science does actually come in and where we, you know, we need to trust the science. So the question is whether we're going to trust the science when it reveals that 62% is sufficient to declare herd immunity because you're still not getting 38% of the population vaccinated and that means that it won't die out <clears throat> and that it will be around and that there will still be, you know, increased levels of death from the coronavirus that could otherwise be prevented by the vaccine and then you're going to be in a weird situation where we 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 we've beaten it but it hasn't gone away in a way that it, it could really almost systematically go away Are the public health authorities going to say that's fine? In other words, like you're not at risk, you're not going to transmit it, and you're not going to get it, particularly if you're going to get a boost in six months from Pfizer or whatever. Go about your life. Everything else is going to go on. Or are they going to say that even though the death toll is down, all that is down, that we need to keep the pressure on.
2: Well, and the, and the day to day experience for people. So in the UK, for example, now that they're reaching hu- herd immunity, they've already announced that beginning in May, upper school, school children don't have to wear masks in school anymore. So, so the daily experience of having to constantly monitor for the pandemic ceases to exist for those kids in a way that's extremely healthy for them and extremely good for the society because the longer and more often people are able to return to some sort of semblance of normalcy, the more trust and and awareness they will have, actually think of the science. And this is why we see this with the school reopenings. The more you reopen schools and people come back to school safely, the more parents trust in the ability to do that increases. So there's, there's kind of a circular logic to the way we're going about a lot of these public health decisions, which is that we're being hyper hyper cautious which in fact feeds into the fear and anxiety and and suspicion people have about ever being able to return to normal.
1: Yeah. Fauci's guideline for opening things up insofar as we can even imagine him saying that, which is kind of hard to picture um, is 10,000 cases per day, um, which seems like kind of reasonable on its face um, because 10,000 is a pretty high number. um, But it's not inconceivable that you could have a herd immunity threshold and still have 10,000 cases of this virus per day. I mean, we had 5,000 breakthrough cases over the in the three, 130 million people who've gotten the vaccine now, not in one day, but it happens. And there will be a significant population that is still vulnerable to this disease, which will probably constitute more than 10,000 people at least a vulnerable population more than 10,000 people per day that could get this disease the metric should be and always should have been hospitalizations and deaths
2: which and are declining dramatically' are declining the- yeah
1: so but until we get to that that point again paradigmatically then there there won't be any loosening of, of this sort of thing on the public health side of things and it's going to be up to politicians to say go screw which is exactly what Gretchen Whitmer did. I mean, she's she's not opposed to implementing some more restrictions, which I think are kind of ridiculous. Having two-year-olds wear masks, for example, which is now mandated in Michigan, which I think makes very little sense. But nevertheless, she's not locking things down, which is what the public health community has told her she needs to do again. And that's exactly what a... What a, a elected official should do: measure all the information that they have, take into account all the variables, including social effects, psychological effects, economic effects—god forbid—and make a determined decision that that takes into account all these competing valid interests, some of which have to win out over others. And it's not always going to be
2: public health. Am I cynical to think that part of the reason she made that decision, though, is that she got busted flying to Florida? I mean, <laughs> that happened afterwards. Oh, that was afterwards. <laughs>
0: it did but you can you know I, anyway I, I just think we're uh you know uh w- we need to we need to we need to trust the science is what i'm saying <laughs> trust the science and i really mean that unironically that's the question is whether whether our our, our uh public health overlords are going to trust the science. Which they haven't been doing a really good job of, for the most part, over the course of the last year. I have to say. Anyway, thanks for listening, you guys. We'll be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, No. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.